All right, podcast family, here's a question for you. One of your pregnant patients asks you about caffeine use during pregnancy. What do you say? I think most of us would traditionally say, you know, as long as it doesn't go excessive or cross a certain amount of caffeine, it should be okay. But is it okay? On March 25th, 2021, a new study was published out of JAMA Open Network that's calling that question, well, into question. The title is The Association Between Maternal Caffeine Consumption and Metabolism and Neonatal Size, or Anthropometry. So in this podcast, we're going to go over this new study and try to figure out what this means. Does caffeine use during pregnancy really lead to smaller babies? And if it does, what does that mean for neonatal outcomes and for childhood outcomes? I mean, is that bad? Well, let's try to answer this question in this session. First of all, I have to say in full disclosure, I absolutely love my caffeine. I'm a coffee addict. I mean, look, I guess there's worse things to be addicted to. But yeah, I drink a lot of coffee. I just like it. Caffeine consumption during pregnancy has been an ongoing topic of debate. As of 2010, the American College of OBGYN recommends that pregnant women limit caffeine consumption to less than 200 milligrams per day. However, systematic reviews and meta-analysis have reported that maternal caffeine consumption, even in doses lower than 200 milligrams, can be associated with a higher risk of low birth weight, small for gestational age babies, and fetal growth restriction. This suggests that there may be no safe amount of caffeine during pregnancy. Oh, that just sounds awful, doesn't it? However, in medicine, you know that not everything is one-sided. In one meta-analysis, four of nine studies reported a null or contrary results. These inconsistent associations have been attributed to, for the most part, on the self-reported measure of caffeine intake in most studies. Coffee varies in its caffeine content based on the method of preparation and the serving size of the caffeinated beverage, and this also varies across studies. Additionally, some studies of caffeine consumption did not control for important co-founders like smoking. Further, there are variations in individual caffeine metabolism, such that people with fast metabolism, those with a genetic variant leading to more rapid caffeine metabolism, may be at higher risk of adverse pregnancy outcomes, potentially because of the higher exposure to paraxanthine. That's the primary metabolite in caffeine. Again, the primary metabolite in caffeine is paraxanthine. All right, so this study that we are analyzing is a pretty darn good study. It's a longitudinal cohort study that used the National Institute of Child Health and Human Development Fetal Growth Studies for Singleton's original data. This enrolled over 2,000 non-smoking women at low risk of fetal growth abnormalities with complete information on caffeine consumption from 12 U.S. clinical sites. The time span was from 2009 to 2013. This secondary analysis was completed in 2020. Now here's the exposure that was studied. Caffeine was evaluated by both plasma concentration of caffeine and paraxanthine and self-reported caffeinated beverage consumption that was measured or reported at 10 to 13 weeks gestation. 
caffeine metabolism was defined as fast or slow using genotype information from the single nucleotide variant. So again, pretty detailed because it wasn't just self-reporting, but they actually looked at caffeine metabolism in this study. The main outcome was neonatal body size, that's anthropomorphic features, including birth weight, length, head, abdominal, arm, and thigh circumference. They also looked at skin fold and fat mass measures. This longitudinal cohort study, published in JAMA Network Open, concluded that compared to women who drank no or very little caffeine, women who drank the most caffeine had neonates who weighed 84 grams less and actually had smaller body measurements compared to the other women. Now, most of this research on caffeine and neonatal size at birth focused on birth weight and length while relying on self-reported measures of caffeine. However, this current study, which again analyzed data from the NICHD fetal growth study, actually went a step beyond because it actually looked at the metabolite of caffeine. This metabolite again was paraxanthine. The two main sources of caffeine were coffee and soda, which accounted for 35% and 41% of caffeine intake, respectfully. Caffeine was evaluated by both plasma concentration of caffeine and paraxanthine and the self-reported caffeinated beverage consumption, which was measured between 10 to 13 weeks of pregnancy. This study looked at 2,055 participants with a mean age of 28.3 years and a mean BMI of 23.6. 28% were Hispanic, 27% were white, and 25% were black. 19.2% were Asian or Pacific Islander. Caffeine metabolism was defined as fast or slow based on the genotype information from the single nucleotide variant that was RS762551. Prior caffeine studies have observed lower birth weight after consumption of higher amounts of caffeine, usually 200 to 300 milligrams or 2 to 3 cups of coffee daily. Now, before starting their analysis, the current authors knew that the average consumption in the sample was actually much lower than the ACOG cutoff of 200 milligrams a day. The average use of caffeine by those who reported it was about 35 milligrams a day, and only 16 women reported drinking more than 200 milligrams a day. Now, because of this low consumption, the authors were uncertain if they would see any significant results. So it was surprising that they still found that increasing caffeine consumption, even at low levels, was associated with some smaller anthropomorphic features in the offspring. Also, the findings that the decrease in birth weight were manifested by decrease in bone and muscle measures, but not skin folds and fat mass, were unexpected. These findings may indicate decrease in lean tissue as caffeine consumption increases. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 
let's stop here for a minute and let's just take a step back. I mean, what does all this mean? I mean, we're talking about caffeine levels and paraxanthine and weird genetic variants about how we metabolize caffeine. Well, in a nutshell, the clinical implication is this. These authors found, again, in this large longitudinal study, that even below the 200 milligrams a day of caffeine recommended by ACOG, even below that amount, it still affected fetal growth. Now, here's the question. Does that matter? Well, the clinical implications of the study currently are unknown, considering that there were only small reductions in some of the neonatal anthropometric measurements. But other evidence suggests that even small amounts of caffeine, about 50 milligrams per day, could be associated with a higher risk of excess growth in infancy and childhood. And this could put children at higher risk of later cardiometabolic diseases. So the results could indicate some disruption in normal fetal growth patterns, but this still requires more research to confirm. Nonetheless, we do need to share this with our patients that in this cohort study of pregnant women, even with low caffeine consumption, even small increases in plasma caffeine concentration and its major metabolite, paraxanthine, were associated with lower birth weight, finding that smaller size was manifested by shorter length and smaller head, arm, and thigh circumferences at birth. The decrease in bone and muscle measures, but not skin fold and fat mass, may indicate, again, a decrease in lean tissue as caffeine consumption increases. Results were consistent with self-reported caffeine consumption, in which consumption of at least 50 milligrams, guys, that's just half a cup of coffee per day, was still associated with lower birth weight and smaller neonatal anthropometric measurements even when excluding individuals who consumed higher amounts, like greater than 200 milligrams. Association between caffeine and neonatal anthropometric measurements did not vary by either fast or slow caffeine metabolism. Caffeine metabolism does slow throughout pregnancy because the fetus lacks CYP1A2 enzymes for metabolism. Caffeine and paraxanthine actually accumulate in fetal tissues. Caffeine is hypothesized to alter fetal growth via disruption of neuroendocrine processes that cause uteroplacental vasoconstriction, hinder organ development, and permanently alter the stress response. In the long term, these disruptions may put offspring at higher risk for rapid weight gain after birth childhood obesity, and even chronic disease. Even low maternal caffeine intake, again, that's 50 milligrams per day, is associated with higher risk of excess growth in infancy and overweight in early childhood and altered fat deposition that may put children of caffeine consumers at higher risk of later cardiometabolic disease. Well, coming from a caffeine coffee lover's perspective, the findings of this study are really disappointing. But it does give us some new data because it actually contradicts what ACOG recommends for the safe caffeine level. Although ACOG lists 200 milligrams a day of caffeine as the accepted amount, this longitudinal study says there may not be a safe amount. And even at dosages that are quite lower than 200 milligrams a day, like 50 milligrams a day, it may impact fetal growth because this metabolite issue actually is stored in fetal tissue. 
Now, the good news is we're not talking about major congenital malformations, but having smaller babies, even though the true amount seems pretty small, it may imprint the child later for childhood obesity and other long-term issues. So again, every patient has to decide for themselves, but as medicine changes, it's our job to stay up to date and current with these new research findings. Thanks for being part of Clinical Pearls, and we'll see you next time on another episode.